Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. This is a story from the book of Exodus. I'm actually going to kind of jump around from, from different sections. You will remember that when we last left off, the Hebrew people have been through a tumultuous time in Egypt. They have been uh, at the behest of Pharaoh. They have been in slavery and servitude. They have been in oppression. They have been um, attempting to go free so that they can worship their own God. However, Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptian people, has wanted to use them for his own gain, to advance his own kingdom, to help them build big buildings and to become uh, this notorious empire in the world scene. And as we've seen, God is attempting to move these people into freedom and life, and the way that this is happening is through 10 signs. And these signs, they grow in uh, intensity, but God is demonstrating his power and his sovereignty and his care and concern for the Hebrew people. But what we've seen here is Egypt is being callous, recalcitrant, not willing to let these people go, in particular, Pharaoh, not wanting these people to go. And and the last text that we looked at was this climactic moment where it was the beginning of what um, Jews now celebrate as Passover, when God says that he is going to kill the firstborn in Egypt, their kids and also the animals. And the way that the Hebrew people would be saved is if they took blood from a lamb that they have sacrificed and paint the door frames of their homes so that the destroyer would pass by or pass over. There's a lot of significance in this text and for a lot of us, as we, we begin to read that and wrestle with it, some of these concepts are, are, are difficult. And tonight, we're going to dip back into some of that teaching, but we're going to also advance the story as the Hebrew people are moving from Egypt closer towards the promised land, although, as you will see, they haven't uh, gotten there yet. So this is Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 37, and then we're going to jump ahead to Exodus 13. This is Exodus 12, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. 
because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And skipping ahead to Exodus chapter 13, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkot, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. The word of God for the people of God. So a couple weeks ago, we did kind of frame our talk around this idea from N.T. Wright. He says, to understand any event in history, you must put it firmly into that history and not rest content with what later generations have said about it. Now, before we get to the three points that I have or the three considerations that I think that we should spend some time reflecting on, I do want to at least bring us to this point. And I think that this is important for us because as a group, you have heard me talk week in and week out about the ancient Near Eastern context of this story in Exodus. When we were in Mark, you heard us week in and week out talk about the first century Jewish culture and context of these stories because I believe that when we're reading the Bible, it's important for us to understand things within their context. We are so far removed from the culture and the time of these people that it's a bit arrogant for us to think, oh, I can just flip open my Bible and immediately get all of the riches and all of the depth that these stories have for us. Now, this is not to say that you can't just flip open your Bible and let the Spirit guide you and you gain something, but to find all of the riches and all of the depth. I don't think that that's how this works. So for us, as we consider this passage tonight, there's, there's things that we need to wrestle with, I think. And as a, just as a person, um, let alone as a pastor, I think I've been struggling a bit over the last week as to how far we should go with this. But you seem like a group that's ready. Okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us into some waters that might be a bit troublesome, but I'm hopeful that as we are led into those waters, we will feel the community of people side by side and perhaps some out in front that are saying, it's okay in these waters. Okay, So here, with this idea from N.T. Wright that we have to understand the history and the historicity of these stories in their context in order for us to get stuff out of it, we're going to march into at least what comes out of the passages that we're looking at, namely the historical questions. Now I already can tell, as I'm looking around the room tonight, the eyes are heavy, my, my, my vocal is very soothing. I've got that Bob Ross effect where I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna paint, a, paint a friendly little squirrel here in this tree. That's my brush. Trance, like trance out. I, could, I have stories about this, but we'll save them for a different time, but just stick with me. 
okay? I know also when you see the word, the historical question is like, oh man, what do we got, okay? But this is one of the reasons why you're here. Okay, so the historical questions that are coming out of this passage, particularly the stuff that we were reading in chapter 12, I want to revisit some of that for us. It says here that the Israelites traveled from Ramses to Sukkot, and they numbered about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at this passage, but for most commentators... From conservative to, li- to liberal, or conservative to progressive, however we want to gauge that out, most people will look at that number, that figure of 600,000 men, not counting women and children, and say that seems to be a problem. Because when we look at that number, it's a massive amount of people, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that are leaving Egypt. Somewhere in the, in the range of two to three million people are leaving this place and then marching through the, the wilderness. And what most scholars would say is, if that's actually the case, then they would have left some sort of footprint out there somewhere. But there seems to be virtually no archaeological evidence whatsoever for that many people to be walking through the wilderness at this point in history. So people have tried to come up with ways for this to make sense. One of the ways they do this is, instead of looking at this term as 600,000, we're going to break off some Hebrew knowledge for you. Are you ready? Yes. Yes, great. The word for thousand is elef. It can also mean, in addition to just being thousand, it can also mean something to the the tune of like a family or a a clan. Um, So 600 families perhaps leaving. So some people are wanting to go back and revisit the text and try to pare it down and have it make some sense here numerically because there's, it just doesn't seem like that many people were, were leaving at the time. There's questions about these numbers here. There's other things that people have done. And I, I think I misspoke a bit, and I want to back up a little bit because I kind of painted the picture as everybody who's reading this passage would say, that's a problem. That's not totally true. There's a handful of conservative scholars that would say this isn't that problematic. And that since there is no archaeological evidence today, there will be 50 or 100 years from now. We will find it at some point. And that's not totally far-fetched because we find archaeological evidence all of the time. One thing that I'm reading right now, and okay, just stick with me. I'm reading about David. Familiar with David? King of Israel. Pretty important guy in the Old Testament, right? There's not a lot to root David in history until a find in the early to mid-90s like 20 or so years ago, where they found this little fragment that said, House of David. And scholars started freaking out, like, oh, we found it! How It says House of David! That means David is a real person! Yeah! Welcome to the world of biblical scholarship, everybody. <laughs> Three little fragments of David. There. But the point is, so back in the 80s, they would say there is no evidence whatsoever to to root David in history outside of the Bible. And then they find something that's great. So some scholars would say, we maybe we'll find something here. But for the most part, people are troubled by this large number and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. The other number that we looked at in um, chapter 12 was also the length of time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt. It says was 430 Years. Now, this one's not that big of a deal because back in uh, Genesis 15, 
When God is talking to Abraham, he's saying, Abraham, it's, it's, it's gonna be the case that your people, they're gonna be in bondage and in slavery for 400 years. They're gonna be in a land that's not theirs. So people start thinking, well, that's a prophecy or that's a saying for 400 years of slavery and servitude, and now we have 430 years, and those two numbers don't seem to match up. So what do we do about that? And in this text, these are the sorts of things that people want to pull out. Now, I can, I can sense that you're looking at me saying like, bro, that's not the stuff that I'm pulling out when I'm just, you know, at, up at seven in the morning, having a cup of coffee, doing my morning devotions. And this is where I'm saying like, hi, I'm Josh, nice to meet you. Like, this is totally the stuff that I do at 7 a.m. with my coffee and Bible, which Kate's looking at me like, you don't do that. You're right. It's more like 10 or 11, Okay and I don't drink coffee that much. But there's historical questions in this passage that have to do with the numbers that are presented in this story. There's also historical questions surrounding the places that are, um, that are thrown out here, specifically when we look at the passage in chapter 13, where it says here that um, God is leading people from uh, Ramses to Sukkot, and then later on, it talks about them going from Sukkot and camping at Etham. And it talks about going to the Red Sea and the desert of the Red Sea. And then in chapter 14, which we didn't get into, it talks about them setting up camp in front of Pi-Haharoth and between Migdol and the sea and Baal-Zephon. And all of these place names that are included in these stories. Now, I'm going to hit you with a barrage of stuff, okay? And remember, we're in the water, and we're all just kind of wading out there, and I want it to be safe, and I want it to be warm, and I want it to be a nice time for all of us, okay? But I'm going to hit you with a barrage of stuff, okay? My doctoral supervisor says this about um, this passage. Frustratingly, the story gives us lots of concrete detail about the way the Israelites went, but we cannot actually locate any of the places it mentions. This text is kind of strange because it keeps talking about all these place names and these towns, but nobody knows where they are. Especially even like the big money place where the the Israelites are going to cross through the Red Sea. Nobody really knows where that was when this happened. There's all sorts of hypotheses, but nobody really knows. A Jewish scholar I've been dealing with in this series, he says, none of the place names mentioned here can be identified with certainty. Another scholar says, the complications indicate that it may be best as for the references to the Reed Sea. And here she's saying the place names and the Red Sea or the Reed Sea um, it may be best not to take the information in the wandering passages at face value geographic veracity was not a concern in that process. And then finally, scholars have spent great energy on the root and especially on the Sea of Reeds, or again, the Red Sea. It is clear, however, according to Walter Brueggemann, that the paragraph that incidentally mentions geography is principally concerned to make a theological statement. Now, here's, here's my big point, and this is why I'm bringing this up, and this is why we're in the water, and it's nice and warm, and we're safe, and we're playing, and we're having a good time. There is stuff in the Bible that when you get underneath of the layers, it's difficult. And there's stuff when you really start digging around, which you may or may not do at 7 o'clock in the morning with your coffee, but somebody somewhere has already done And when you hear this sort of stuff, it it shocks you. Like when I read that quote that says, geographic veracity is not a concern. If you can cut through all the scholarly mumbo-jumbo to hear what she is saying, 
It's not a concern for the author to really care too much about geography. And for the churched folks in the room, the first or the second or the third or the 10th or the 20th time you hear that, you think, what the heck? It doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard before. What do I do with that? And what I want us to do here is in the midst of a theologically diverse community, okay, I want us to be out in the water and say, like, there are these ideas out here that maybe it wasn't 600,000 men, and maybe it wasn't two to three million Israelites leaving Egypt and going into the promised land, and maybe it wasn't all these places that we can't find. And maybe, stick with me, maybe that's okay. Because the last quote that we looked at, he says here, perhaps, perhaps, that this geography that's being mentioned here, it's being mentioned in order to make a theological statement. Now, I want you to hear this. As much as you might be wrestling, as much as those waters might be starting to shake, I want you to hear this. The point of the Bible, people, the point of the Bible is to teach us who God is. Above anything else, we learn who God is and about God's love, his, his reckless and beautiful and sustaining love for us in the story that we see in the Exodus, yes, but we see climactically brought to fruition in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what the Bible is aiming to do. And even if we have these historical issues within it, we're still able to see what God is doing for us. And as Walter Brueggemann is saying, perhaps the story here is meant to teach us something about who God is. And this is where I want us to hang out for a few minutes today. I want us to spend some time thinking about what we might be learning about God in the midst of this, but not before we just at least address this one more time. When you guys sit down to read your sacred text, when you guys expect the Spirit to show up and to minister to you and to encourage and to challenge you, I do not want anything that is said in this place, and this is why we pray this, uh, hopefully on a weekly basis, where the errors will just fall to the floor. We will not be swayed by these things, but I want us to not be scared of the book that we have, and I also want us to be okay maybe saying the book that I have and the book that I inherited as a kid, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't hold up in the way that I thought it did. And I've had too many conversations with too many of you sitting over coffee or what other choice beverage we might be doing where you're like beginning to, to live within the midst of this deconstruction and reconstruction of your faith. And I don't know if that's just the community that we have attracted here for some reason, like our confession about this prayer of the doubters and we want to make room for them. I don't know if that's who we are, but I've heard from a lot of you where you're trying to pick up the pieces, and what I want you to hear on a weekly basis is, yes, we care about the historical context of the Bible. Yes, we care about reading it well, but also we care that the God of the Bible is present in your life, and the God of the Bible is engaged with you, and the God of the Bible cares about you, and the God of the Bible, we believe, will be present in your life when the stuff is hitting the fan. Do not let passages about numbers and cities and place names that scholars cannot find, do not let that take you away from the beautiful truth that Christ is king and that he is invested in you and that he is calling you to follow him. Do not miss that, people.
So here's our three theological truths or theological things that we should be thinking about as we look at this passage. And I don't know if this is good or bad, but sometimes the things that I have planned in my head, they work out a lot differently when I'm actually speaking. This is one of those things. So I'm going to trust that the Spirit's working here, and this is not just me throwing stuff out there. Okay, so this is our three theological things. The things that we see in this passage, particularly in chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, we see the leadership of God because it says here in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, that's a theologically important use of the verb. This is the thing that Moses has kept saying to Pharaoh, let us go, let us go, let us go, let us go, let us go. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, no, no. And finally, after these 10 serious plagues or signs, he finally lets them go. And it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. And what we see in this passage is God who is so invested and involved in the lives of his people that he is leading them from point A to point B. Now this is going to get a little little bit weirder next week as we see where God is actually leading them in this moment. But God is the one who is taking his people and leading them through the wilderness. We saw at the end of this passage, we see um, a pillar of fire that leads them by night and a pillar of cloud that leads them by day. Like God is with his people in physical, tangible ways they can see him. And God is moving them from point A to point B. I find this interesting. The text says, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, even though that was the shorter route. God thought, which is always interesting, God thought If the people have to fight and face war, they will run back to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the Red Sea Desert. God thinks, well, if these people go this way, this might happen. So we're we're gonna go this way. It's almost like God is having these different options that he's playing out in his people and how they react and respond in certain ways. I find that to be interesting. But what we see here is God leading this people. And this is a motif that shows up throughout the Old Testament in one of the most climactic ways and then one of the most popular ways is Psalm 23, right? This is one that for the church crowd, you've heard this, you've adopted this, you've read this, you've memorized this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. This is this image of God as a good shepherd who is leading his people to exactly the place where they need to be. Now I can tell you too, and perhaps this this is something that should just fall on the floor, but I found this interesting. There was a professor who worked at Princeton for the majority of his uh, tenure, and he was teaching a class, I believe, on the Psalms or the poetry of the Old Testament, and he read this passage to people, um, and what they took away from it was like anger, especially when he gets to the line, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and they said, well, I don't want anybody to make me do anything. It's just a really strange response from from people. And I don't know what's motivating that, but I want you to hear the heart of this, that God is moving his people to exactly where they need to be and leading them and guiding them. We also see this in Deuteronomy 8. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. This is on the other side um, of this event as they have left 
the Israelites have left Egypt and they've been with God for these 40 years and God has led them. He's led them to humble and to test you in order to know what is in your hearts, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. God has been with you. And he has provided for you in numerous and miraculous ways. God is leading his people. And I want to at least pause for a moment and allow us to consider the fact that God is continuing to lead us. And I don't know if this is your story, and we're going to get a little bit weird and spiritual here for a moment, but I don't know if this is your story, but you ever been sitting there and you just have this impression or you have this feeling, you have this leading to go do something or to go talk to someone or to, to step out in a way that you haven't stepped out before. And maybe it's not just in that moment, but maybe it's something a bit bigger where you're, you're feeling really led to go on this missions trip or to, to enroll in this program or to go seek this job or to go do this big thing. And I know for a lot of us that we kind of, we're rational people. We talk about historical context. And I hope that we don't lose sight of the fact that God is still continuing to lead us. And when he does, to allow ourselves to be empowered and encouraged to follow his leading because he will protect and provide for us. Now, the second theological point of this story, I guess you could say, is the people's resolve to trust in this. And what I find super interesting about this is the Israelite people, when faced with adversity, they get to leave and they get to go and everything's great until something happens in their lives. And then they begin to complain and they begin to, to say, we want to go back to where we were. This is later in Exodus chapter 14, and we'll look at this more next week. It says, as Pharaoh approached, and this is Pharaoh beginning to chase down these people because he he changes his mind and he doesn't want them to go, so he chases after them. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and they, there were the Egyptians. They were marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And this is what they say to Moses. Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you while we were in Egypt, while we were enslaved to the empire that was using our sweat and our blood and our tears for its own advancement? Didn't we say this to you, Moses, when this was happening? Leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians that don't care at all about us. Didn't we tell you, Moses, just to let us be slaves working for an empire where we benefit not at all. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, they say, than to die in the desert. Change is hard, right? There's situations in your life where something happens and you find yourself in a new place or you're, uh, perhaps you listen to that leading of God and you're starting to go in a direction and then something happens and you start to doubt everything and everything starts to crumble and fall apart and you have no idea what's going on. And this is the most human response that we could offer or they could offer when people are behind you. You've got the Red Sea in front of you and you've got Pharaoh behind you. And you've got nowhere to go. You begin to do what? Why would you do this? 
it would have been better for our lives to just be miserable as slaves in a foreign land, Moses, you jerk. Why couldn't you have just left us alone? And sometimes, folks, the call to follow Jesus is a call to leave one situation and go after a totally different situation. And there are moments, I think, when it begins to get difficult or it begins to get weightier. You begin to feel the depth of what is going on. You put yourself out there for the sake of relationships. You put yourself out there for the sake of reconciliation. You put yourself out there to give people a different image of Jesus and it doesn't get received in the way. And then you begin to say, well, it was just better and it was just easier and it was just whatever over here and I want to go back. And at least in this passage, what we begin to see is this theological point of the resolve to trust that it takes for people to leave sometimes slavery and to move into freedom and life. And it's not too dissimilar for the path that many of us have trod where we move from slavery to sin or slavery to whatever and we begin to follow Jesus or we begin to move into freedom and life and then it gets hard and we just want to go back. And we don't want to mess with it anymore. And it's our own human inclination to begin to complain, to begin to moan and cry, to begin to blame other people, to do exactly what they do when you've got nowhere to go in the front, you've got nowhere to go in the back, and you've got nothing else to do but to say, I wish that I didn't go anywhere at all. I've made a huge mistake. And I want to at least encourage us this evening that wherever you guys are in the midst of that journey, and perhaps you do see a sea in front of you and the enemy behind you, I want you to, to hear that, remember, God is leading you as a good shepherd leads you to quiet and still waters, to, to bring nourishment to your soul, and also understand and to be inspired by the fact that it takes a resolve on your part to trust that God is good and that God does want you to move into a place that will sustain you and I want to encourage you in that. And I hope that we're creating a community here where we can encourage one another in that to have that resolve to trust. Now, the third thing is this weird uh, bit in this passage about the bones of Joseph. So it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. And this is looking back to a passage in Genesis chapter 50 where it says Joseph had stayed in Egypt. Now remember, Joseph is the reason why Israel is in Egypt in the first place. He's an Israelite. He's gone down to Egypt. He's risen to prominence. He's like number two in, in Pharaoh or the king of Egypt's house. And Israel is able to get fed and they've got shelter and they've got a good life until that Pharaoh dies and then stuff goes in a bad way. But Joseph is there. And while he's there, it says that he's there and all of his father's family, he lives to be 110 and he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, who placed at the birth of Joseph's knees, whatever. And then in 24, it says, then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. You know it's gonna get good because these are like the, the things that people say, like I'm, I'm gonna take care of my business here and this is what I really want you to focus on. God will surely come to your aid. This is an emphatic construction in the Hebrew. I know that God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I know, family, that you're gonna get out of this place and you're gonna go to the place that God has promised to us, to our family, to our people. 
And then he continues, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place because I don't want to be here. I want to be where you're going in that land of promise. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt, and apparently they've, they've had these bones stashed away for a lot of years so that as Moses is leaving, he says, guys, we're getting ready to go. We've got our unleavened bread. We don't have a lot of time. Get me the bones. And this is important because we see a God who is leading and we see people with a resolve to trust and we also see this tension between the past and the present. One scholar says it's as though at the last moment with Joseph, who as an Israelite was an incredible compromiser with Egyptian definitions of reality, meaning he was engaged in the empire building, he finally asserts unequivocally his Israelite identity. Joseph finally gets it. At the end, so much so that he wants the people down the line to take his bones and bury them in the land where God is leading them. Now, there's a couple ways that you can think about this. One way is for some of us, and I understand that we're taking some liberties here, but for some of us, as we think about like the bones in, in the past, it's like this ancient relic or this, this thing that is back there somewhere. We keep looking back to the way things were. And perhaps this isn't speaking your language, students, but for my dear friends maybe on this side of the room and peppered in over here, I see you, Jonathan. For some of us, as we look back to the way things were and, and how stuff's going now, there's so much change. And, and even in our culture over the last 10 years, there's just so much stuff and it's happened with so much frequency and so quickly that we have no idea what to do and we just want to go back to the good old days. And there's this tension between the past where we are or the present where we are and the past back there where things were, were different and better. Now, perhaps for some of you over here, that doesn't speak your language and all you see is going forward and the old stuff can just be the old stuff and it's old and it's traditional and it's whatever and we're going in a new way. So grandpa, I don't understand that when we sit down and we talk about things, why you are such an old fuddy-duddy and we can't even have a conversation about politics. It's strange to me that I can't talk to you, my 75-year-old grandfather, about politics because we should be seeing things eye to eye. That's not anybody's context. I mean, we're just, we work in totally different ways of thinking where for some of us, we just want to go back to where it was. And for others, you just want to go forward. And there's this tension within this story, at least as we see Moses taking these bones of their forefathers and taking them to the promised land, that there's this beauty of tradition. And there's this beauty of looking back and seeing the winds in the past, but also being able to advance in the present. And I hope that as a community, we're able to see that tension and we're able to bring it to divide. We're able to say like, this is the good stuff from our past and this is the things that matter and this is how God has brought us to, to fruition. We've seen God's faithfulness, but we also want to continue to move and to grow. We can't have either one where we're standing in the middle and we just continue to look back or the people that are continuing to look forward. There's got to be this meeting of the minds in between where we're trying to bridge the gaps and it's difficult to see that. But in this passage, we see Moses taking the bones of Joseph and the theological potency of that. They're going in a new place. They're going to the place of promise. And even this old dead guy 
saw that coming and wanted to be a part of it. This text is weird. And there's a lot of different stuff that's going on there. But I hope that maybe from some of these reflections, we're able to see or be reminded of the fact that God is leading us and God cares about us and God wants to move us into the place where we're cared for and we're loved. And I know as easily as I look around this room, some of you do not feel cared for and loved. And some of you do not feel that God is present. Some of you do not feel that God is leading you. And some of you do not feel that God gives one rip about who you are. And I want to challenge that. As we come back to this passage and we come back to see like God as the good shepherd, we see God as the one who has overseen 40 years of wilderness wanderings where not even the shoes or the soles of the shoes have worn out. They were not in want for food or for water in the middle of the desert and God had provided for his people. That perhaps in some way, wherever we are, that God is wanting to provide for us. And to be reminded of the fact that in the midst of that, in the midst of our own wilderness, whatever that means, that we have to trust and there's a resolve on our end to trust that God is taking us to a place that might be uncomfortable and it might be different and it might be new but it's a place where he can use us. I want to encourage us with that um, this evening. I don't know how to fit in the bones. That's a weird element. But there is this, even Joseph saw where things were going and he could have been so stuck in his ways, but he just wanted to advance. And perhaps for some of us, we're only looking behind us. We're only looking back to the relics and to the bones and to the way things were. And we need to have an idea and a vision to see where God is leading us in the future. Three things somewhat uh, linked together, but somewhat not. Um, And I hope that even as we look through this passage uh, in the 21st century American context that we can see something for us of relevance this evening. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.